Welcome to the third episode of Under Control. I'm Paul Bartlett, and on today's show, I sit down with Ramesh Atapatu, who is the CEO and founder of Patronus Wealth based in Dubai. Patronus Wealth specializes in private wealth management with a particular focus on personal relationships and data protection. During the show, we will discuss how digitalization can support the need of an extremely secure environment in the world of asset management. Hey, Rom, thank you for joining the show today. Maybe we can get started with just an introduction about your organization and yourself. And then from there, we'll look to see um, what experience and knowledge you can share with us about your industry and certainly with technology as well. Sure, Paul. Thank you for having me. I'm originally, I, I studied engineering. I was an investment banker to start with, but then quickly got pushed into wealth management at a very early stage. I worked for Deutsche Bank and then subsequently for a family office out in Switzerland, managing money for some clients in the region that I'm at, which is in the UAE, for a couple of years. After which, uh, and this is quite a long time ago, talking 20, yeah, 21, well, 19 to 20 years ago. And then I, um, a Fortis Bank out of Switzerland, it was called Mies Pearson at the time, uh, approached me to set up a new business for them in Asia, and I joined as quite a junior relationship manager, assistant vice president to kind of develop the Southeast Asian market, which is where I'm from originally, which is Sri Lanka. Over the next few years from 2001 through um, 2007, I was instrumental in developing the private banking business for Fortis, which is out of Geneva to, for, in that region. And it was a name that was not really known. It's a Benelux bank. Fortis doesn't even exist anymore, in, in fact, because right. what happened in, in 2007 <laughs> was that they bought ABN AMRO and right. uh, things went quite pear-shaped from there. Yeah. But in, just before that, they were, they were you know, on the Fortune 500, on the banking sector, they were number two, believe it or not, after Citibank right. in terms of revenue. There were 17 on the, um, on the Fortune 500 list globally. So this you know, is incredible what, yeah. what, the, what the financial crisis can mm. do. And, and so we, I, I joined them. They set up in Dubai in 2004 and five. I was part of that original team. And then in 2007, when they announced that they were going to merge or take over ABN AMRO, I decided that uh, it might be time for me and my partner to look mm -hmm. at other options. And we talked to various banks as, as private bankers do. Uh, as as long as you have a book, everybody is interested in talking to you, you know. <laughs> uh, True. Uh, yeah. And so uh, there was a lot of interest and we eventually set up, we agreed to join another private bank called Mirabeau out of Geneva. It's very, very old, 1819. Mm -hmm. One of the Bonkier Privés, original private banks out of Geneva. And we were part of that in, the formative team in Dubai. Right. Setting it up from scratch uh, with three people originally. Uh, it's now a team of, I think, 45 plus people. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, it's, it's grown tremendously. So that right. was kind of my, my uh, so I've been in private banking for, for 20 plus years. Wow. 20, 23 years to be exact. Yeah. So yeah, it's been a, it's a long journey. And then eventually um, we felt that it'd be, it would be interesting uh, together with some clients to set up our own quasi-private bank or mm -hmm. wealth management institution. And that's uh, from that, we uh, created Patronus Wealth. 
right. which is who, uh, your client today. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, I'm just curious to understand what was the switch for you because you studied in mechanical engineering. Was it were you drawn to the industry, uh, to the wealth management industry, or was it just you fell into it? Just curious out of that. I was working. I, I was working in oil and gas. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and unfortunately, at the time, this was just at the end of the Gulf War, was when I was right. graduating. There was not many engineering jobs. It was quite a, a difficult market. I had. I was working for Baker Baker Hughes. It was called Baker Oil Tools at the time. Yeah. And the only real opportunity was in investment banking. So when I joined as an investment banker, I knew nothing of finance. Mm-hmm. But the idea was that engineers tend to be very good with numbers and, and right. very analytical. So it was not too difficult to get my head around it. Yeah. And so we're doing cash flows and all of that stuff. And then even that kind of dried out and it became personal banking. So it's more of a personality driven right. business, I think, to a yeah. great extent. Yes. Yeah. Um, and it's on that point, because you've got such an extensive background um, from working in small business to large banks, obviously you've seen technology evolve over the period of time. And I'm curious to, to know about, particularly in the wealth management sector, what you've seen evolve with regards to different technologies. Um, where has there been milestones or certainly a step change um, in the way that you do business in the in, in wealth management sector? When we started, or when I started, mm-hmm. email was just the the only thing available, <laughs> literally, yeah. right? And and you had an AS400 system that was, you know, very laggy. <laughs> and uh, that was all there. So you could access a client portfolio, but it was so technical in right. how you did it that you had to know all the commands to kind of see what the positions were. Uh, I'm not even sure if the, if the information is very up to date at the time. And the, and so you saw that sea change of development from, from an AS400 to more of a web-based uh-huh. GUI you know, type of interface uh, where you could see things, you could click on things and it would lead you some other places. And so on Mm -hmm. but at that point in time to be very honest compliance was very much based on the information that the that the relationship manager had extricated from the client right with a little bit of background information but i mean a lot of reliance was placed on the credibility of the of the relationship manager Mm -hmm. what we saw after that i mean if i you saw that there were relationship managers that i knew of in some large banks that had basically faked documents of clients right and re-signed as a client and tried to commit massive frauds and, and take 50 60 million dollars out of a client's account meanwhile using Excel spreadsheets to send dummy statements to clients. Right. So you can see what, you know, the yeah. risk and the danger. And all these clients, it's, it's, it's a true story. I won't mention the institution <laughs> because I don't think I have any right to do that. Yeah, but we like a true story. But it's a true story about a, It's amazing that clients all introduced each other. They were getting these massive returns from this mm-hmm. top, you know, you know, triple A bank, if you want to say that, right? And they had no room to doubt whether mm-hmm. whether the relationship manager was lying to them. Obviously, he was my competitor. So I was yeah. saying, there's no way that you could be receiving guaranteed returns of this, you know, this level without any associated risk. But, you know, people were seeing returns and seeing is believing, as most people mm-hmm. would say. So as a result, they were putting more and more money in there. And at the same time, Paul, if, if you are making 
a certain amount of money on your account, then you're most likely to spend the money that you have in your pocket mm-hmm. more liberally because you think you have more money in the bank. Right. Yeah. So it is not only the fact that people were getting fake statements, but they were thinking they had more money than they actually did. And so they were making purchases and investments in property right. and vehicles and jewelry and, and watches and things like that with money that was actually not really there. Mm-hmm. So when the bank finally found out that this guy was up to no good, he would take a client's account opening forms, get them to sign it, and then sign a, a duplicate set of forms and certify it saying that he has seen the signature. And, and so he would be signing on everything right. as the client. Unbelievable. Right? Yeah. Incredible. Right? Yeah, and it can believe that. And so all the bank finally found out they refunded the clients, but the clients were really short because it was yeah. not just the capital, but they'd spent money in terms of the returns that they were thinking they were getting, right. which were never which were never non existent. Mm-hmm. And so this is a typical example of, mm-hmm. of when there are no checks and balances and, and IT security doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and so I think over the over the years you see there was more and more checks and balances, a four-eye policy. Uh, everything was double-checked. People had to clear something. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so you, you, I mean, I can't be specific, but yeah. you, you did see these, th- these measures being put into place. And you, yeah. you saw that mail was secure. Right. I can give you another example where at the bank that I was working with, there was someone who, who hacked the email of a client and sent a handwritten transfer instruction, handwritten, because that was what the client used to do. He was in his 80s. He was living <laughs> in England, and he never, he, yeah. he would just handwrite and sit and scan his instructions. But he had specific instructions not to call him. So, you know, but the procedure was that you would do a callback. Yeah. But it was kind of not clear what the, what the exact procedure should be. So since we'd been dealing with him for so many years and he suddenly we received a transfer to transfer $425,000 to Hong Kong to buy an apartment. And after a lot of toing and froing by email, which again, we had no idea that he had been hacked uh, because the the hacker was so clever in the way Uh that they structured it. They talked about cricket, they talk all the things that the client knew. They've already read everything, and they well, talk about the cricket scores and the players and how well he played in that over. It was so specific mm-hmm. that there was no way that you would know that this was not him. Right. And then you get a written instruction, not not yeah. a typed instruction. I, I really need to emphasize this. It was <laughs> a handwritten instruction in his handwriting saying, please transfer this money to Hong Kong to buy an apartment. Now, the man is in his late 70s, early 80s. Uh-huh. You're wondering, what the heck is he buying an apartment in Hong Kong, living in England? Doesn't make any sense. So there's <laughs> a lot of questions that were that were raised. And yeah. he, he answered, he said, no, I've found an opportunity. And the fact that he had invested before by selling a property somewhere else in the Bahamas kind of gave it some, some right. credibility. Mm-hmm. So finally, we the money was sent out. The money went, okay? And then we called him because I, I was just uncomfortable. We called him and said, listen, Mr. So-and-so, uh, we've, why are you doing this? And he said, what, what, what do you mean? Mm-hmm. He said, well, we got instructions from you. We asked you several questions. You answered them. He said, no, that was not me, <laughs> right? Yeah. So you're like, you are pulling your hair out, literally. You know, your job is on the line too, right? Even though you, yeah. you put in all the all the stops you could think of is still not enough yeah. at that point. 
And um, so luckily, we were able to send a swift message to Deutsche mm -hmm. Bank, uh, who was the intermediary in this particular case, and stop the money from being credited at the final account. And we got the money mm -hmm. back, except for $25. Right. I mean, it, it's, yeah. you know. And that's going back to a time when you, yeah, you can believe that those things, those probably weren't visible to the public as much as as visible. No, and, but it's happening. It's yeah. happening now. It's happening yeah. all the time. Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah, and I think on that point, I'd be keen to know about Patronus, your own organisation, everything that you've learned over the years or you've been witness to. How is how are you dealing with technology and communication with clients? Uh, it's probably at the very forefront of what you've seen and witnessed about uh, ensuring that you build that trust with clients because it's not just the relationship that you're talking to them to over the telephone, but the way that you do transactions, the way that you uh, collect signatures, for example, the way that you validate information. Maybe you can give me a little bit of insight about, about that as well, where you started out from when you um, joined the organization to where you are now. We set up the organization on what, what we considered best practices for the industry. Mm -hmm. um, I'm, I'm one of the found, founding partners of Patronus. And, and so what we wanted to do really is to create a private bank or private wealth management offering that was still similar in terms of its culture to the private banking that we knew from the beginning. Because what has happened, unfortunately, is as good as all the big banks are, what uh, a lot of it is overrun by a compliance mentality, mm -hmm. which kind of, you know, the, the relationship manager is doing all he can, but compliance people are impossible. They're not willing to look at things on a pragmatic perspective. And this is not to say that we should be easy on compliance, but it is to say that you should understand the client and their, and their situation more without using a one size fits all kind of yeah. mentality. So, that's the we built our business around relationship and about around personal contact we we wouldn't open an account unless we really understood how a client had made his money and we could we could really justify that so it's not just paper a paper trail because people could doctor a paper trail yeah but also kind of getting an understanding on a personal level and then also understanding in the future how the client interacts with you, mm -hmm. because that's important. You know, what are the what are the typical type of investments and trades that the client does? What's his pattern? And you kind of use that as a benchmark to see if something is out of profile, mm -hmm. if you don't understand, you know, and then always ask for an explanation and a clarification mm -hmm. before you do that. We are very, very cautious about the procedures that we use to double check, even, even a trade instruction. Uh, mm -hmm. we, we, you know, we'll call back a client, we, we confirm everything that we've had, we've got recorded lines obviously, but if it's a wire mm -hmm. transfer, for example, given this COVID-19 situation and the fact that people are taking full advantage of mm -hmm. you know, people with bad intentions, uh, we are asking that we speak to a client face-to-face -face on a Zoom call yeah. when we do a transfer because we just want to know that it's you, uh, that mm -hmm. you sent the instruction and not anyone else. And no money is leaving our platform without that because we don't want to run any risk and we don't trust any piece of paper that we receive. Yeah. You know? 
yeah. I mean, because of the, the, the obviously emails being the, the, the primary technology that everybody was communicating with, and I think people got caught up in email uh, for so long now, that now there are other ways of being able to communicate with clients, and maybe this is being forced with the COVID situation. But I was just keen to see what other uh, additional yes. measures, especially from a security perspective, as you just mentioned, you've got your clients on a call to verify their identity um, but other ways of communicating with clients, even yeah. with uh, documents um, that you need to exchange, as in contracts, um, and how do you validate signatures? And, and do you use things like online digital signatures? What technology is in place? We do use digital signatures, but we always ask for an original. Uh, but mm -hmm. that doesn't mean anything right. today, right? So you need mm -hmm. to see the person signing the document, mm -hmm. right? And that's a really archaic approach. But yeah. Unfortunately, that is what it is because you're talking about somebody's money, mm -hmm. and 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 so that you know that you can't take uh, you can't take uh, things for granted. So. Just because you receive a fax or an email or a scan saying, please transfer X, Y, Z, we're going to call the person, uh, make sure that we, and we know all our clients. I mean, that might be a luxury being a small boutique private wealth management uh, to be able to know your clients personally mm -hmm. and to know what they sound like, you know, their children's names, you know, their situation, you know, their, their point in their life and what they're going through, mm -hmm. if they're sick or whether they're well, you know, all that is really important. So that kind of, adds to the tag it's not a one size fits all like i said so yeah. so just because someone you sends you an instruction doesn't mean anything unless you are very comfortable that it's within the pattern you know the person uh, you can have a conversation uh, around that and then then we mm -hmm. do it because I'll take, you know once the money like i told you you send four hundred and fifty thousand dollars out there's no you know you have to be really lucky and god's got to be on your side if you're going to get it back you know accidentally right? yeah so. <laughs> yeah. And I, I think when you've got all of that information to hand, because a lot of companies these days do have a huge amount of data about their customers and their clients, and it can be used in the wrong way, as you've just demonstrated Absolutely. in the past. What are you doing as well as an organization to build, for example, with new customers, that kind of trust um, when you use technology? Uh, what is the, the key things that you do to build that relationship with the, with the customer? Because I can't, or I assume that there are situations where not everybody's coming into your office. You're probably dealing with customers in different locations. Yeah, so I mean, this is the thing about this virus is that it's kind of hit everybody broadside from the mm -hmm. back point of point that you can't see people, or you can't go meet people. And I think mm -hmm. we derive our, our comfort and our security from the fact that we know our clients. I mean, I say mm -hmm. we know our clients, we entertain them for lunch or for dinner, you know, or whatever. And we, we go from actual face-to-face -face meeting. Mm -hmm. So that becomes difficult. You have to use Zoom, mm -hmm. but it's a process then of getting to know your client. We don't really keep a lot of client sensitive information online mm -hmm. in digital format, but rather we have paper files mm -hmm. for that type of thing. And we keep it in the office in physical form. Mm -hmm. We were very, very cautious about having anything online. Mm -hmm. uh, and until we came across uh, Treasure it, it, it was, for me, it was a, it was a non-negotiable, mm -hmm. uh, but uh, you know, COVID-19 and, and what Treasury offers us in terms of end-to-end uh, -end security is something that we were comfortable with, you know, having certain bits of information for our, for our, so that we can work. Yeah. But again, we limit the number amount of information that we keep mm -hmm. 
in the digital space, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think there's there's good reason to 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 have concerns about that. I mean, it's not just an instant switch straight away that uh, typically wealth management teams are um, engaging with their clients, and certainly I think with their clients there is also some influence from the client about what information goes where. Sure, exactly, exactly. Right, so I'm sure that clients are asking you, it's like, what are you doing with that information? Where is it being stored? How secure is it? Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. And that's something we need to assure clients and Mm -hmm. the regulator of. So that's a real important consideration for us Mm -hmm. in order to make sure that everything is secure. And also we limit the amount of information that's kept. There's a fine line between how much information is enough mm-hmm. and how much is too much. Uh, and you, you err on the side of having too much information for the sake of convenience on a digital platform, you multiply your risk, you know, by a factor of, you know, 10. Yeah. So you, you just limit the amount of information that you really need to work with in terms mm-hmm. of operationally to, and, and, and keep it that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. And I think on, on that point as well is that, that- everyone assumes that the threat is from outside that somebody else is going to come in and hack um, the information but there's that risk inside as you've demonstrated already that there is always the the internal risk of information being misused um, to a certain extent and having certain control measures over that about what exposure of information is given to certain members of teams um, is is also very very relevant and very important so um, absolutely and the larger the organization gets the more unwieldy mm-hmm. that that becomes right so you have to then limit all the information to a certain group of people who are held fully accountable legally as well mm-hmm. for the leak of that information and so we put procedures into place where once information is gathered it's it just remains in one location and very limited people have access to that and you mentioned the point about regulation, which is always a, an interesting topic for myself because we deal with many customers who are very much guided by regulation, certainly within the US, um, with the Securities and Exchange Commission. Uh, we deal with customers there, heavily regulated environment. I take it that's also the case for you in Dubai. Um, yes. How is, you mentioned that you, you've probably got auditors coming in um, and auditing the way that you store information, but is there any way that technology has benefited your um, compliance and regulation and your auditing processes? I think it's easy because it's a lot more organized mm-hmm. and it's clear to, clear to see how the information is stored in what format in, and what structure you're using to store that information. Mm-hmm. When you're dealing purely with physical information in, in a paper format, you know, it's a lot harder to access the information that you need quickly, right? So like I said, it's that fine line between having too much online and not. But um, we've structured it in such a way that we can access client orders separately. We can access, you know, client information in terms of profile and so on, uh, source of wealth and things like that. So that, and, and we also limit who, who can access what. Right. Yeah. So people have rights, I guess, is the correct word. Yeah, access rights mm-hmm. to specific pieces of information. Yeah. I hope that answers your question. Yeah, that, that answers the question. Yeah, but the regulator is very, very, very particular about how mm-hmm. you're storing information, now you're processing that information, and mm-hmm. who is doing that. So we have to be compliant. We have obviously our compliance and our legal counsel who, who kind of guide that policy to a great extent. 
Yeah. And do you have regulation coming in uh, in Dubai as well? I understand there are some data regulations um, for storing data online, um, some specifications that you need to use certain technologies around, as you mentioned, end-to-end encryption. Um, we're starting to see other countries adopting some form of GDPR. Um, certainly in South America, we see that Colombia is now set, setting something up. Brazil is just about to introduce something. Um, are you also having to deal with this as well? Because, of course, you're based in Dubai, but you're probably dealing with customers in other locations as well. Is that causing any headache or uh, difficulty for your organization? Not particularly. I mean, mm-hmm. right from the from the start, that was the, the uh, they've updated some of their policies and their guidelines. But they were quite specific about about data protection from the from the beginning. Mm-hmm. So we've adapted we've, we've adopted our systems along that. What the difference that we moved to an online system, which is a treasury, mm-hmm. is because all this time we had it in physical format and nothing was on a server or right. on a hard disk, nothing at all. Mm-hmm. So we had to actually move a lot of that information online uh, and put it. On Treasury, which mm-hmm. uh, because we need to have access to certain amounts of information. Yeah, and it's surprising uh, when I talk to some customers that they've been, been doing that for a long, long time, and I understand why they've been doing that and their fears about moving online uh, because it's not always just the organisation as we just mentioned. It's also the clients uh, have an influence over that, and so you need to have the trust from your clients as well as that. I suppose the technology that you're choosing, you can justify to your clients as well. Um, and it takes a time. Yeah, in fact, I mean, that is, that is one of the things, if you like, of a USP from our side mm-hmm. as Patronus, is that one of the things that clients are always exposed is that they have an asset manager, they have an account open in Dubai, but the actual physical assets are in Switzerland. Mm-hmm. So both Switzerland and Dubai both have copies of the same information. They don't know who has what. And then the more bank accounts that they have, the more their information is obviously going to be scattered. Mm-hmm. And what we one of the things that we're doing is we're going to keep all the information with us. And then we have a different arrangement where we open accounts for clients in Switzerland, where it's an omnibus account, it's segregated client by client, there's no intermingling, but each client account number is is defined and we keep the information with us. So the Swiss banks that we work with, relying on our compliance and anti-money laundering Mm -hmm. procedures and format, not format, but rather controls, Mm -hmm. uh, which they're comfortable with, which they feel is is on par with what they would apply. And so, yeah, so we, we try and keep all the information with us. So that's so then the real risk becomes how do each of us in the team interact with that information? And so that's where we have used the solution that Treasury has offered us. Right. Okay. And are you seeing as well that certainly with the requests that I'm getting when I talk to customers who are interested in our service, particularly um, storing files, confidential information online, there's more and more emphasis now on a digital audit trail. So they want to be able to present uh, activities that are happening inside this this technology. Uh, should, they ever, yeah. should they ever be requested by an authority or even by the client itself? Um, they want to be able to see the way that their information is managed when it was managed. 
Uh, are you also seeing that as something very, very important to your operation? It is very important to our operation. It is actually one of the one of mm-hmm. the key point key reasons why we were we were happy with the solution that we are with, that is with with Treasury, because we want to see who's access, accessing information, who's modifying information, and what they're doing with that information as well. Are they mm-hmm. ma- are they printing it out? Are they emailing it? What are they doing with that information? How is that information being manipulated mm-hmm. and u- utilized? So that's really important to us. And then audit trail is of, of immense value because mm-hmm. um, that creates accountability and transparency and also reportability in, t- in a, sh- should there be an audit. Yeah. Okay, it's interesting to get all these insights firsthand from, from people that are working certainly with our technology, but any technology um, over the oper- you know, during their day in an operation. I just now want to move on to the present situation um, with COVID. Uh, how are you managing that right now? I mean, as you said, you were kind of broadside- broadsided by it. Uh, you've got all your documents, uh, paper format, in an office on site. How have you managed to the sudden need for transition uh, what was it like mm-hmm. i guess we we moved fairly quickly to get what we needed to our on onto our online platform onto a secure platform and it was properly organized so that everything mm-hmm. can be accessed in the right way by the right people we don't have all of it online because not all of it mm-hmm. is required to be online if that makes any sense yeah. right because we transactionally we don't need to know everything we just need to know certain certain bits of information and particularly because we know our client yeah so that kind of helps a lot is a personal contact with the client and the relationship because if on the flip side you ran a a large like forex platform or broking platform that was uh, very much retail in its in its approach then you have the risk that you don't know your client and you can't possibly know your client or if you're a very large institution, it's, you know, the relationship manager is the only person who has client mm-hmm. contact. And so it becomes very difficult. And so you need to then rely on more information online. Mm-hmm. So in our case, and to our fortune, our good fortune, our clients are larger. Mm-hmm. Therefore, they, they we know them better. And then the amount of information we need to have is is less uh, in terms of what we have online on a day-to-day operational perspective mm-hmm. right so in terms of how we're operating in in covid we we've had to go online in terms of our meetings mm-hmm. we can't really all pitch up at office because of the social distancing requirements mm-hmm. and then the physical limitations of an office where people you know, can't be pasted on one wall and the opposite wall. You know, there has to be some. <laughs> yeah. yeah, people need to be able to work comfortably. Yeah. So we have, and we and also, unfortunately, this thing is far from over. So mm-hmm. we do, we want to tread tread lightly and not not be in a big rush to head head back to the office mm-hmm. because we seem to be working very well. We also use a, a platform called Slack. Mm-hmm which allows us to communicate and see who's online, you know, and what mm-hmm. everyone's doing and, and deal with issues almost like we were sitting in front of each other. That's That's been really useful. It's a secure environment in itself as well. Uh, only the team have access to set channels and so on, and everything is also encrypted. So yeah. we com- combine those two and we are able to work quite well. Yeah. The only thing that we are struggling with is meeting people. Mm-hmm. 
but I'm sure that presented also another challenge for yourself in respect of understanding what control measures you need to put in now because everyone's working remotely, what information can be exchanged on what platform. Um, yes. Those ideas, and I know I spoke to a lot of customers as well, is that the certain communications need to be used, as you mentioned, with channels like Slack, but then the, the exchange of documentation needs to be done in another manner as well. So... Um, and I suppose, again, there's the adoption issue, uh, which I see a lot of my customers were facing during COVID. Is that how do you use this platform? How can we um, send things out in a confidential manner? Uh, pushing people towards adopting the technology a lot earlier than what they, even they expected uh, to be using it. Uh, was that as a bit of a struggle for yourself as well, either with the team or potentially with your clients? Clients, not so much, mm -hmm. but with the team to get everybody, you know, you keep on adopting new systems yeah. and people get, you know, you have to change the way they think and operate. And that's not so, not, not so easy, but people have been, uh, we've got a good cooperative team and they've gotten on board and they now understand what the process is and how we, right. how we deal with things. So it's, it's not been too difficult. But obviously, whenever there's change, people resist yeah. change because that's not the way we do it, do things. You know what yeah. I mean? And and so you need to get around that. But yeah, we thankfully we are we're flowing well. Uh huh. Good, good. And yeah. just looking to the future now. Um, how do you? I mean, I know it's the unknown that we're looking into, but what is your primary concern right now from maybe a technology and a security perspective or regulation? Um, do you see that the landscape might change in your sector uh, and the way that people interact with each other due to the COVID situation or going forward? Um, what's your, what's, what's your feeling about taking well, the wealth management forward? There's two things. There's two aspects to this. Previously, when you wanted to meet somebody, mm -hmm. you had to actually fly there, set up an appointment right. and go and visit with them. And so there was a cost of doing business. Mm -hmm. Right. And it was a very normal, traditional approach. Now, uh, people are much more open to having a video conference than they were ever before. I mean, you mentioned the word video conference, um, you know, six months ago. People are like, ah, just call me, you know, I really yeah. don't want to bother with connecting to Skype or whatever the thing that you have. I don't know. I mean, it's just too much hassle. And just call me or just come see me. Right. That was generally the the approach but now people everybody has been forced i mean uh, the upside is everyone's been forced to download zoom from the grandparents on outlets right. right and so everybody's kind of figured out how to use it you know a lot, lot of people i can see you but i can't hear you you know that's a joke right because yeah. uh, <laughs> with, it's, always, know, to, <laughs> it's always been a I challenge think, yeah <laughs> yeah i think My, michael mcintyre had a piece of piece on on covid19 where you know, you could, he said, you will not be able to travel anywhere, but you can see people, but we can't hear them. Mm -hmm. And it's all, you know, but I think people have adopted well to meeting online. So it has given you greater accessibility to people that you would not necessarily be able to meet uh, first mm -hmm. time. You know, you could yeah. do a potential call, uh, you know, follow-up call, but the first time meeting is always was always limited to actually a physical meeting. That's no longer the case. So that yeah. from a market perspective, it's open a little more, open more clients to mm -hmm. us, I think. But then the flip side of that is that you can't really get to know people properly because it's very functional yeah. and you get, you have a conversation around just specifics around 
what you want to do, uh, you know, all of that. But mm-hmm. there's no going on a first date. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. The relationship building element's kind of missing. It's very practical, yeah. No, that's that's kind of missing. Yeah, so it's very, very functional and yeah, and, and, and it's exhausting because mm-hmm. it's functional and it's not it's not so fluid. But you have to work with what you have. Yeah. In the current scenario and you've got to stay alive. That's the other thing, right? Mm. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. I mean, yeah. I was just I, I when you mentioned uh, in that, and I was thinking that going to the point where you're saying that you're trying to build relationships on online over Zoom or over Teams, certainly my interactions over the last few few months have been that people are more willing these days to get on to a video call. Um, and show themselves, uh, maybe because of the isolation, I'm not sure, but certainly all the customers that I've interacted with from the UK to the US um, have wanted to get actually on a video call, but to try and get them to switch their video on uh, pre-COVID was the unknown. It was, you can just give us the presentation and you hear the voice and you didn't feel that that next level of communication of seeing that person and now suddenly it's become kind of the normal thing that everybody switches their their video on which to a certain part for me it's it's humbling and it's nice to be able to to see the person that you're presenting to um so i've seen some some other positives coming out of that and i also see that certainly as ourselves as a vendor um we're seeing that people have given us more time to speak to us, whereas before it was a kind of, I've got another meeting to dash to, um, I've got to yes, jump out. Yes. Um, they do tend to give you a little bit more time. Uh, yesterday I spoke with four individuals in, in Switzerland. Um, and we were on a call for probably an hour and a half. Um, and there was some small talk in there, but that would be the kind of small talk that you would do in person uh, when you would meet, the, meet them either on site or if you moved off site and, and went to a coffee shop. And that I can I can feel that that element of uh, of it is is completely missing. Which uh, I hope that one day it will return to some kind of normality. Yeah, because look, it's it's great. The, the advantage is that you don't need to get into your car, brave traffic, yeah. you know, crazy drivers, fine parking, mm-hmm. rush up, sign in, you know, all the things that we take for granted. But all the things that you know that people do in order to go for a meeting right Mm -hmm. and then if the person is in switzerland for example you have to actually get a flight from wherever you are to switzerland or to london and then go and meet them and set up an appointment and then all of that so it's much easier you get a lot more done Mm -hmm. but it's also a lot less personal that's the the flip side of it so you know but but it's better than nothing Okay, Ron, um, I'm going to wrap up with this last question because I see we're coming to the end of our time. Um, I'd be interested to also see what advice or learnings that you could give people coming into the wealth management industry for their spinning up their company or um, they're looking to adopt a new technology stack. They're moving, as you mentioned, from the filing cabinet uh, coming into uh, the digital world. Uh, What's the, the main advice or learnings that you, you would give to those, those people? I mean, I would proceed with caution because mm. this, is a, this is an information-sensitive business. Mm-hmm. Uh, the whole business is around relationship and the relationships are structured around the information that you have. 
and therefore you need to be careful about who's which partners you choose to work with mm-hmm. how secure your channels are what your process is and your procedures and what controls you have because you know you can't take things for granted and mm-hmm. you can't assume you know that thing you know on the face of it so to speak but you got to ask those questions around you know what are the controls how does this work and what could go wrong what mm-hmm. if you know and i think that would be my advice to anyone who's getting into it doesn't have to be wealth management yeah. anyone who's getting into the digital space in terms of keeping information i would ask mm-hmm. those questions because it's really important to know because ultimately the buck stops with you right mm-hmm. and and uh, yeah okay thanks a lot ron it's been a fascinating uh, session with yourself um diving into the wealth management industry just having a taste of what that is i'm sure there's a lot more um to learn and understand about your particular sector and the way that it works um but this has certainly been something that uh, personally has been very informative to me and i hope that for the other listeners as well um they will also take some value from it thank you very much for your time thank you so much paul nice talking to you and that's it for today's episode of under control You can find links to all of our social platforms and to our guests in the episode description. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe and leave a review. Join us in two weeks' time for the next episode.